Hi everyone, Earl at thelogbook.com here, just letting you know that the logbook now has a Puyan. Sorry, a Patreon. We have a Patreon. If you're a fan of the site itself, its ever-expanding lineup of podcasts, the books based on the site's content, or all those kickin' Kasatochi chiptunes, you can help us keep the lights on and keep cranking out the stuff you like by heading over to Patreon and supporting us either a little or a lot. There are plenty of levels of participation, and there are some fun goodies in it for you, too, no matter which level you choose. Just head to patreon.com slash the logbook to see how you can help. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. Ah, the late 70s and early 80s. The boom years of the video game industry. And my game system was the Magnavox Odyssey 2. Sleek, stylish, futuristic, and totally underappreciated. Let's change that. I'll dig through the Odyssey 2 library, introduce you to each game, offer a few of my own expanded memories of playing them back in the day, and we'll see if those games hold up today. I'm Earl Green, and this is Select Game. (laughs) Welcome to the belated November edition of Select Game. First off, I want to apologize for this installment arriving very, very late this month. I intended to have it out right before Thanksgiving in time for everyone's road trips, but it just didn't happen. I got sick. I got hit with a bronchitis sinus infection double whammy, and as they used to say in the old days of radio when it was actually, you know, a guy sitting in front of a microphone spinning music on a turntable... I was not in good voice. I'm really still not in especially good voice. But I have a lot of the coughing under control. And so I figured now is as good a time as any to try to knock this out. If I sound a little stuffed up, I apologize if that is not a pleasing sound in any way. I'm trying to sound like I'm not talking out of my nose. But I kind of am. I'm also talking to my dog. It's a pretty cold night outside, and so... All paws are inside with me. Isn't that right, Gabby? Good dog. This is not a podcast about dogs. You need to go sit down. Go on. First off, usually we try to have some Odyssey 2 news up front at the beginning of the podcast. I really have nothing to report for this show. Nothing at all. Nothing new has been released since the last episode of Select Game. Uh, Nothing to see here. Please disperse, as they said in The Naked Gun. However, if you feel like supporting Select Game or thelogbook.com as a whole, there's all sorts of things you can do. We have a Patreon now, patreon.com slash thelogbook. And also, between now and Christmas, in the logbook.com store at thelogbook.com slash store, you can order thelogbook.com's big geeky ebook bundle with all five of my books to date, three of them published this year. For 15 bucks, you get DRM-free PDF ebooks 
of Warp 1 and Warp 2, two books I've written so far on the subject of Doctor Who, Warp 1, covering classic Star Trek, the Escape Pod Logs, and Fatherhood Fandom and Fading Out. All for just 15 bucks if you feel like supporting the site, supporting the podcast, helping me keep the lights on, that would be good. If 20 people would order that bundle, man, that would be awesome. I could use the scratch, as they say. This month we are talking about one game and one game only. Possibly the game in the Odyssey 2 library that really has the story attached to it that is most emblematic of the Odyssey 2 fortunes in the North American video game market. We are, of course, talking about KC Munchkin. In Europe, Philips marketed the game simply as Munchkin. KC was added in the North American market because it was the... KC was the initials of the president of Magnavox at the time. And it was... um, it's a little bit of brown-nosing on the part of Ed Averett and the Magnavox game group. They were trying to make sure that the upper brass at Magnavox was totally behind their effort to put out a game cashing in on the gobbling dots in a maze video game craze at the time. Little did they know that the approval of the head of Magnavox was going to wind up being the least of their worries. When you're hungry for real excitement, munch. When you're hungry for fast action, munch. With Odyssey's new KC Munchkin video game, it's eat or be eaten as you chase through mind-boggling mazes, gobbling up points. And when you're hungry to step up the challenge, munch. Odyssey's computer keyboard lets you program a myriad of mazes all your own. Nobody else's maze game does that. KC Munchkin, available now. Programmed by you. The story of KC Munchkin goes back to its designer, once again, legendary Intel 8048 Wrangler Ed Averett. There's an extensive interview with Ed Averett at dadgum.com as part of their online book collecting and collating interviews with several classic game programmers. The online book is called Halcyon Days. And here is a quote from Ed Averett from that interview. Pac-Man was the hit of the day, and I was asked to design a game that would compete with the game concept of Pac-Man without violating copyright laws. But there were no copyright laws at that time concerning video games. A three-way design effort was begun by marketing, who wanted to come as close to Pac-Man as legally possible, the Magnavox legal department, who wanted something they could easily defend in court, and me, who wanted to design a game that would eat Pac-Man's lunch from an interactive play point of view. Everyone was pleased with the results. Elsewhere in that interview, Averett says that the average development time for a 4K Odyssey 2 game, and the 4K games tended to be your expanded memory Challenger series games, was about four months. So the decision to get KC Munchkin out before Atari could put its home-licensed version of Pac-Man for the 2600 out in March of 82 
was pretty deliberate, but it wasn't exactly a unique one. There were already pack clones on the market. Issue 4 of Electronic Games Magazine includes a full-page ad for a game called Ghost Hunter, published by Santa Barbara-based Arcade Plus, which ran on the Atari 400 and 800 computers, even though the ad labels it as an Atari classic, even though it's a brand new game. Other console games such as Muncher for the Bally Professional Arcade rolled out very quickly after KC Munchkin arrived, almost simultaneously. Internal records show that Ed Averett was working on the game as early as July 1980. Now, one major source of facts and figures about KC Munchkin is the fact that Magnavox got sued over this game. And here to tell us more about it is Olivia the Cat. Hi, Olivia. Actually, I don't think she's here to tell us about that. Anyway. A lot of information that we wouldn't normally know about the development and background of a video game from this period is now a matter of public record. So here are some quotes from the legal decision the final legal decision, unfortunately, involving Casey Munchkin, which describes something very interesting. And that is that Magnavox and North American Phillips actually tried to license Pac-Man. Once I get the cat out of the way, I can tell you what the quote is. Alright, here's the quote, actual, actual quote from the legal decision. Ed Averett, an independent contractor, created KC Munchkin for North American Phillips. He had previously developed approximately 21 video games, including other Maze Chase games. He and Mr. Stop, who is in charge of North American's home video game development, first viewed Pac-Man in an airport arcade. Later, after discussing the strengths and weaknesses of the Pac-Man game and its increasing popularity, they decided to commence development of a modified version to add to North American's Odyssey line of home video games. Mr. Averett also played Pac-Man at least once before beginning work on KC Munchkin. Mr. Stop and Mr. Averett agreed, however, that the Pac-Man game, as is, could become popular as a home video game, but only if marketed under the Pac-Man name. Thus, as Mr. Averett worked on KC Munchkin, North American Phillips sought to obtain from Midway a license under the Pac-Man copyright and trademark. Mr. Staub later learned that the license was not available, and so informed Mr. Averett. At that time, Mr. Averett had not yet completed KC Munchkin. When Mr. Averett finished the project, North American examined the game and concluded that it was totally different from Pac-Man. To avoid any potential claim of confusion, however, Mr. Averett was told to make further changes in the game characters. As a result, the color of the gobbler was changed from yellow to its present bluish color. North American also adopted the dissimilar name KC Munchkin and issued internal instructions not to refer to Pac-Man in promoting KC Munchkin. Okay, that last sentence there is fantastically important in the story of this game. It's also I, I should really note that according to information from other sources that I'd already read, Phillips and Magnavox never had a chance in hell of getting the license for Pac-Man. There was an existing relationship between Atari and Namco that dated back to a 1970s licensing agreement covering Japanese distribution by Namco of Atari's breakout coin-op. 
And this gave Atari a sort of informal most favored nation status when it came to licensing. And certainly when it came to console licensing of later games such as Pac-Man, Galaxian, and arcade and home licenses such as Pole Position and Dig Dug and so on. Phillips was never going to be able to get the rights to Pac-Man. Anyway, we will get back to the the story, the, the drama surrounding Casey Munchkin in just a little bit. Now we actually need to play the game, spend a little bit of time at least playing the game. What you need to know in order to play Casey Munchkin, in case you have a cartridge but don't have a manual, to play visible mazes, you press 0, 1, 2, or 3 for standard mazes, Pressing 4 will get you what it claims is a random maze, but is really going to be a minor variation on the theme of mazes 0 through 3. All of these mazes can be played in an invisible mode, where the maze walls disappear while Casey is in motion, and only appear when he stops dead in his tracks. And that's the only chance, you have a, only chance you have to get a look at the maze, and then you have to keep moving. You press 5, 6, 7, or 8 for invisible versions of mazes 0 through 3. 9 will randomly select an invisible maze for you again. It will be a variation on one of the existing mazes. Now, here's what's what the, the similarities are between Pac-Man and KC Munchkin. You are basically a moving mouth. You eat dots in KC Munchkin. They're called munchies. One dot in each corner will temporarily make the ghosts chasing you edible. Oh, but they're not really ghosts. There are only three of them, and they are called munchers. Now, here's what's different. The number of dots is pretty small. There are only 12 of them per maze. Four out of those 12 are basically the equivalent of your energizers or power pellets in Pac-Man parlance. However, the dots do not stand still, and they do not stay in the same place. The dots move constantly. The dots can occasionally pass right through maze walls. And I really think that's a bug rather than a feature, but Ed Averett works for Microsoft now, so he knows all about that. The ghost regeneration cage in the center rotates like a turnstile. And it randomizes the direction that a freshly reconstituted muncher will shoot back out into the maze. And you really have to watch that. It also prevents them from getting in there to regenerate, which is an interesting element. Unlike Pac-Man, where Pac-Man can never enter the ghost regeneration cage, KC Munchkin can go in there, although it's a very risky proposition if the ghost of a muncher has just gone in there to begin its own regeneration cycle. If it regenerates right on top of you, you're dead. And like most Odyssey 2 games, Casey Munchkin, you have only one life. There is no arcade-inspired three-life cycle. Unlike Pac-Man, Casey can stop dead in his tracks. You let off the stick, he will sit there, and he will smile at you. Almost like he's tapping his feet. Sort of like, if you think about it, this is something that another blue furry creature would do later in video game history. Remember Sonic the Hedgehog looking at you and, and crossing his arms and tapping his feet, waiting for you to get the lead out? kind of think he borrowed that from KC Munchkin. 
So, that said, let's hook up the Odyssey 2 and play the game. Oh, I see here, oh, 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 little Easter egg here in the cartridge box. From time to time, I would uh, write a high score on a piece of paper. This one's actually, I, I, wow, I had an electric typewriter for this one. Fancy. It's obviously half of an index card. There is no date. Simply a name and a score. It says Earl Green, 640 Munchkin Spectacular. And there's a little hand-drawn Casey Munchkin. And a piece of my hair, possibly from when I was... Jeez, I would have been eight years old. You can clone me with this. Although I wouldn't recommend it, because he'll just want to sit around and do podcasts about old video games all the time. It's It, it really gets to be a mess. It, without any context, I mean, this doesn't even tell me what maze I was playing, that I got 640. Yeah, that's really impressive. Could that have been a maze that I programmed myself? And if so, uh, you know, unfair advantage much? By the way... Casey Munchkin lets you edit your own mazes. We'll get back to that later. Let's play the game. Okay, let's play Casey Munchkin on Maze Zero. This is the one that most resembles your basic garden variety Pac-Man. The munchies are on the move. The munchkin's on the move. Hey, I just ate two out of the three ghosts. Ghost munchers. Munchers. It, I can't really fault Magnavox's sales force on this one. It really is hard to not refer to this game in Pac-Man terminology. Okay. That's Maze Zero. Maze One. A little bit more convoluted. Gives the uh, ghosts a bit of a Oh, gives the ghost cage a bit of a racetrack around it that you have to uh, get into. But they also have to get out of. So I can't really tell if it's a help or not. It's not a help. Okay, maze two. A bit more vertically oriented. You have lots of, uh, lots of hallways and straightaways that run up and down. Had a couple of nooks and crannies that one could conceivably hide in, or corner a ghost in, as I just did. Take that. Alright, two out of the three. Let's have all three. Uh, but one of them is back in the cage, regenerating. Do as much damage as I can. Which obviously isn't a lot. I only scored 40 points there. Maze 3. Okay, Maze 3 is my favorite because this is... This maze is divided into four quadrants with the rotating ghost cage in the middle. And the only way to get to the other compartments, for lack of a better way to put it, is to go through the ghost cage. Alright. Which I just did. It's sort of a, uh, sort of a turnstile. 
If this had been the default maze for this game... Oh great, two of them just went in there to regenerate. Fantastic. If I go in there, sure as the world is turning, and there they go into the compartment that I need to visit. Great. Fifty points again. If this had been the default maze, I don't think there would have been as much of a leg for Atari to stand on because the third maze is wildly different from wildly different from Pac-Man in any way. There's nothing like that in Pac-Man because Pac-Man doesn't have the turnstile effect on the ghost cage. Maze 4 for something that supposedly delivers random mazes, Maze 4 is kind of weak because basically what it does is it adds or subtracts very minor elements from the existing mazes 0 through 3. Yeah, big whoop. Let's try the basic 0 maze in invisible mode. Okay. I hate invisible mode. This really does not help. But it's kind of funny because if you think about it, if I am not mistaken, Pac-Man Plus, which was an arcade enhancement kit that Midway sent out to arcade operators to freshen up their Pac-Man machines, and there was a component of the distribution of Pac-Man Plus that involved turning in bootleg boards such as Popeye Pac-Man or Piranha, games of that nature. It, there was sort of an amnesty program where if you had one of these bootleg boards, you would surrender it to Midway in exchange for a discount on Pac-Man Plus. And they would then take those boards and try to use those in their legal quest to eliminate the bootleggers who were basically sort of cutting their profit out from under them. Casey Munchkin's Invisible Mazes anticipate that element of Pac-Man Plus, which I will double-check my timeline on this, but I believe Pac-Man Plus came out in 82. And, oh, actually, hang on a second. I've got a marquee up here on the wall. I'm going to go check it. 1982, Midway Manufacturing Company. Okay, so the marquee itself says Pac-Man Plus. Exciting new Pac-Man Plus. 1982, Midway Manufacturing Company. So, obviously, with such exhibits as Pac-Man Plus borrowing the Invisible Maze mode and Atari Soft winding up with... Uh, HAL Labs code for Taxman on the Apple II and turning it into Pac-Man with very little effort. Neither Atari nor Midway were averse to using the spoils of war to their advantage. So there you have it. I trust if you have ever played an Odyssey 2, there's a pretty good chance that you have played KC Munchkin. So I wasn't going to spend two and a half hours playing the game. I could. I mean, that's the danger with KC Munchkin. It's kind of 
fun and addictive, and you can so totally sit there and play it for an hour. I didn't think that would work too well for a podcast. I just kind of wanted to rock it through the various maze variations and give you a taste of those. Now, as I mentioned before we started playing, Casey Munchkin has a level editor. This is the first level editor that ever appeared in a console game. Level editors or edit modes of any kind were a rarity in 1981, even for computer games. Loadrunner had one. Loadrunner had an edit mode, but it was a computer game. This was the first time you had a console game with a level editor, and it really exists only because of the Odyssey 2's keyboard. This is one of those games where it really, it really all came together in this one package. Casey Munchkin is a fantastic game. For what you paid for it, you, you know, it gave you a lot of variations, you know, a lot more variations than Atari Pac-Man did, certainly. It gave you completely different mazes, and, you know, the number of mazes, once you start messing around with it yourself, trends toward infinity. To enter the maze editor, you press the P key on the keyboard from the select game screen. You'll notice that there are vertical coordinates, letters A through G, and horizontal coordinates 1 through 9. This is your grid. You can build whatever kind of maze you want with a couple of minor restrictions. You cannot delete the rotating ghost cage. You, you can try, but the program will not let you. It is. That is a forbidden thing. It is a permanent square in the middle of the screen. By pressing a number first and then a letter, you can select a vertical wall. A letter first followed by a number selects a horizontal wall. Pressing enter will add a wall there. Pressing clear will delete a wall. You can also call up one of the existing mazes before you start. You can press 0 through 4 and hit enter and then it will let you enter the programming mode. And once you are done editing, pressing yes or Y will let you play your maze, but really the, the one weak, if there is one big weakness in this entire game, it is the fact that there was no way to save your mazes. You either had to write down the formula for how you did it or take a picture of the screen. Even now, those are the options we're left with. That's how you save a maze in KC Munchkin. You have to take a picture of it. You have to somehow come up with a way to remember or record how you constructed or deconstructed the maze. And then you have to program it in again from scratch. I mean, you didn't even have punch cards at this point. Really, I don't think a workable... If I'm not mistaken, you didn't have a workable battery backup on a console cartridge game until Zelda. I know they tried with Lords of the Dungeon on the ColecoVision, which ironically I think was a... Uh, well, I don't want to say that was a Probe 2000 game. Let me look it up real quick. Uh, let me totally just go in here and look it up. Oh, it okay, it was a Probe 2000 game because it was programmed by Rex Battenberg, who also programmed Flashpoint for the unreleased Odyssey 3 console. Okay. So I am not totally shooting my mouth off there. It was a Probe 2000 game. It's interesting that the inventors of console edit modes, 
and console level editors were also the first party to think of sticking a battery in a cartridge so you could save your own creations or at least save your progress. One thing it is impossible to do with the level editor is it is impossible to completely keep the ghosts away. The turnstile changes direction, so they could come out aiming in any direction. And if you enclose them, because KC Munchkin starts exactly one square north of that ghost cage, any attempt to wall the munchers in will wall them in with KC, and you're going to die. I had to uh, do a little bit of thinking on various mazes I had programmed in my youth. There's some interesting variations, because I like to spend a lot of time with the level editor in this game back in the day. Uh, it is possible to turn KC Munchkin into a survival horror game. If you really want to honk someone off, trap all the dots by walling in the corners of the maze. Now, there is no way you can score. There is no way you can power up. All you can do is run and be eaten. However, even that's not foolproof because the uh, there is that bug that exists in the code that allows some of the dots to pass through. Really won't do much to help you, but it might make things interesting for a couple of seconds while you're running for your life. I remember, uh, I remember setting my brother up with that maze and he wasn't too happy with it. If you have some interesting mazes that you've programmed on KC Munchkin, send me, send me photos, send me emulator screenshots. You know, send something to, uh, to show interesting maze designs that you've come up with in KC Munchkin. Maybe this podcast will inspire you to go sit back down at your Odyssey 2 or your video pack. Or your emulator. I'm not going to dock points for that. And uh, see how difficult you can make life for our favorite munchkin. You can post them to thelogbook.com's Facebook page. Or send them to me on Twitter at logbookguy. So that was the, the editing mode. You know what? Talk's cheap. Let's give it a try. So now we're back at the machine. Let's try some programming mode. All right. I'm going to take this maze that starts out with the racetrack around the ghost cage. And I'm going to start messing with it. I'm actually going to make it less less Pac-Man than it already was by how can I do that? Ooh, okay. I could be really evil. Oh yeah, that would be really evil. Okay, here's what I'm going to do. 
I'm going to wall off the bottom part of the maze, so you have to go through this racetrack past the ghost cage to get in there. And it's the only way in, and it's the only way out. And just to make it really diabolical, I'm going to... Make it so it's completely open down there. Oh, that's just evil. That's just evil. Okay, let's uh let's play this and see how much of a mess it is. Well, I got two of the ghosts right off. It's not too bad. Alright, got all three of them. It didn't make it as difficult as I thought it would. Except that one of them is now alive again. Oh, crap. I didn't mean to eat my last... I'm in trouble. Oh! The first board I've cleared, and it's been my self-programmed maze. Eat two of them again. Seems to be a recurring pattern here. <coughs> oh! My own maze design almost bit me on the butt there. And I just wasted a power pellet for no good reason. Oh! Man, he just popped out of there while I was still stuck down in that area. Yeah. Yeah, that didn't, uh, that didn't work out too well. I'm going to take a real quick picture of this maze so you all can see what I've done to myself here. So there you go, Casey Munchkin Level Editor. Built-in Level Editor. Wow! You know, I talk from time to time about the Odyssey 2 and the Video Pack being ahead of their time. And, you know, I'm sure a lot of you guys who were more smitten with Intellivision and ColecoVision and what have you, and keep in mind that it wasn't long after... No idea what happened there. It was a cat catastrophe. Not long after the Odyssey 2 came into my home, my parents figured out that this wasn't really something that was going to upgrade to a computer. And I got my first computer, which was an Apple IIe compatible Franklin Ace 1000. So I had a computer alongside the Odyssey for the longest time. Uh, the window during which the Odyssey was the sole electronic device having love heaped on it in my home was, uh, was a fairly narrow window of time. But even so, the level editor, that was something that most of the games on my Franklin Ace couldn't even do. 
uh, like I said, Load Runner would allow you to do it. I remember a few years later there was there were third-party editors for games like Ultima 3. Not quite the same, because Magnavox and Philips, yeah, they gave you the tools to do it. It was built into the cartridge. Kinda neat. Kinda neat. That's right, Obi. So let's talk about the reviews KC Munchkin got at the time of its release. Its first mention was in Electronic Games Magazine issue number two from March 1982, which said Odyssey has stolen a march on rival video game companies by being the first to get a gobble game into the retail market. Its version features just 12 munchies, but they don't stand still, as in Pac-Man. In Electronic Games number three, which came out in May 1982, at the time Electronic Games was still bi-monthly, in an article called The Amazing World of Gobble Games by Arnie Katz and Bill Kunkel, they had this to say, Odyssey had the honor of releasing the first gobble cartridge for the programmable video game market, KC Munchkin. Although this game is significantly different than Pac-Man, it boasts cute graphics and rapid play mechanics of its own. Now, I will say this from having spent a lot of time talking to Bill Kunkel, many years after Electronic Games Magazine had come and gone. He told me many a time that he was... He was very well disposed to the Odyssey 2. Actually, all three, you know, Katz, Kunkel, and Worley, were all very well disposed to the Odyssey 2 system because of the keyboard, for the same reason, basically, that I was and that my family was. They saw a lot of potential in the keyboard, a lot of untapped potential, to be sure. But they weren't the only ones who had good things to say about it. Now, here is an article that came after the legal maneuvering had begun. This was in Video Games Magazine, number one, the very first issue in August 1982, and the review was written by Randy Hacker. She says, anyone who buys Pac-Man because they love the arcade game with the same name may wind up disappointed. She's talking about the 2600 version here, which had come out by this time. Other than retaining the basic game concept, it bears few similarities to the real Pac-Man. There are dashes instead of dots and power pills rather than energy capsules. A square-shaped vitamin, no fruits or keys, serves as a bonus. There is no music. Oh, come on, Randy. Do you like touch-tone telephone music? Pac-Man himself doesn't look well. This is not to say KC Munchkin is, sorry, was, so much better a game than Pac-Man. It's just better, and more fun. KC may also lack that lovable chubby figure, but he does have a charming personality and even smiles. Every time KC comes to a halt, he turns to face you with his little antennas up and grins. Something about the sound when KC gobbles up a ghost, which by the way is identical in appearance but more visible to those in Pac-Man, it's a crisp, final sort of munch that appeals to me more than the one in Pac-Man. However, if you're wondering if Randy Hacker was going to unequivocally recommend Casey Munchkin to consumers, she then went on to diss the controllers for both the 2600 and the Odyssey 2, and recommended going back to the arcade to play real Pac-Man, especially since Casey Munchkin had been effectively had been exiled legally by this point. So your key takeaways from these reviews, KC Munchkin hit the market first by a long way, by months, nearly half a year, in fact. 
and it was getting very positive reviews. And once Atari's own Pac-Man cartridge comes out, which I, I really try not to spend too much time on this podcast talking about Atari games, but in this well, on this particular topic, we kind of have to talk about Todd Fry's Pac-Man. Not because I'm trying to get in on Ferg's territory over at Atari 2600 game by game, but because it's the elephant in the room. Once it came out, people went back and said, hey, you know that KC Munchkin game was a lot better. For the record, KC Munchkin was released on Friday, October 30th, 1981. And it had barely been out for two weeks before everything went to hell. Great games can be rewarding or intensely frustrating. This is no exception. The Philips Video Pack Computer Games System. These plug-in cartridges are all programmed for different games. Cards. Even a challenging round of golf. Philips, simply years ahead. The thing that got KC Munchkin and Magnavox and Philips into deeper trouble than anything else was a matter of marketing. You remember earlier in the podcast, we talked about the fact that Magnavox had issued internal instructions to its sales and promotion people not to refer to Pac-Man by name during the marketing of KC Munchkin. Unfortunately, while their national-level sales distribution network may not have referred to Pac-Man as instructed, they had no control over the local salespeople, the local distributors, the local stores. Here are some excerpts from the legal case text. An independent retailer in the Chicago area nonetheless ran advertisements in the Chicago Sun-Times and the Chicago Tribune describing Casey Munchkin as a Pac-Man-type game, and as challenging as Pac-Man. Another printed advertisement referred to KC Munchkin as a Pac-Man game. Plaintiffs also sent investigators to various stores to purchase a KC Munchkin game. In response to specific inquiries, salespersons in two stores, one being the aforementioned independent retailer, described the Odyssey game as like Pac-Man and as Odyssey's Pac-Man. On Friday, November 13th, 1981, clearly Casey Munchkin had allowed a black cat to cross his path. No offense, Puck. An ad appeared in the Chicago Sun-Times for a video game store called Minnesota Fats, the Video King. <laughs> Sorry, I have no idea if that's what their ads sounded like, if they had TV or radio ads. It just seemed like a thing to say. The wording described Casey Munchkin as a Pac-Man-type game. On that same day, an employee of Atari's legal team called a Chicago retailer to ask about KC Munchkin and was told by whoever answered the phone that the Odyssey 2 game was just like Pac-Man, but it was out of stock. Sunday, November 15, 1981, another rep for Atari's legal team paid a visit to Minnesota Fats, the video king. Now I'm doing that thing like Isaac, pointing on you know the opening credits of The Love Boat. The video king, hey, out of sight. Minnesota Fats was in Oaklawn, Illinois, the location that was visited by this rep for Atari's legal team, and they bought a copy of KC Munchkin, and the store employees once again said, this game is just like Pac-Man. 
Thanks, Minnesota Fats, the video king. On Wednesday, November 18, 1981, armed with the above evidence, Atari and Midway sued North American Philips, Magnavox, and one of its authorized local retailers, Park Television. The suit claimed not only copyright infringement, but deceptive trade practices due to all of the unauthorized comparisons and mentions of Pac-Man. I have a feeling that suing the local retailer probably had a lot to do with grounding the jurisdiction in the Chicago Circuit Court for whatever reason, possibly because they had a favorable judge. I'm going to read you an excerpt from an article that Bill Kunkel, the late, great Bill Kunkel, who was the executive editor of Electronic Games Magazine, he originally wrote this for GoodDealGames.com and then later incorporated it into his book, Memoirs of a Game Doctor, which was published by Rolenta Press and is sadly now out of print. Here is what Bill had to say about providing expert testimony on the Pac-Man case. I talked to the Magnavox lawyers, read the legal documents, and played the Odyssey 2 game. In the process, I became convinced that Atari was attempting something that was, in my opinion, illegal and dangerous to the continued success of the entire electronic gaming industry. Remember, I used to write comic books. The historical horror of DC Comics, a.k.a. National Periodicals, taking Fawcett to court based on the notion that Captain Marvel was too much like DC's Superman was a piece of history I knew only too well. Atari, like DC Comics, was attempting to hijack an entire genre. DC argued that both Superman and Captain Marvel possessed superpowers, secret identities, and capes. Had DC's case not been ultimately overruled, there would be one company in the United States with the right to publish superhero comics. Ultimately, however, the courts realized that ceding an entire category of comic books to one publisher was no different than restricting the publication of mystery novels to Bantam or the release of R&B music to Atlantic. For Bill Kunkel's words from his article at Good Deal Games and from his book Memoirs of the Game Doctor. I happen to agree with Bill on that point. However, whereas there had been a glut of Space Invaders clones in the late 70s, and perhaps Casey Munchkin had Pac-Man been a 1970s game and Casey Munchkin been a 1970s game, Casey Munchkin might well have slid by as a, you know, just another one of those unauthorized clones we can't track down. By the early 80s, there was a small but growing body of case law involving copyright of video games, including a precedent-setting case involving Stern, which went after a bootleg maker of Scramble printed control boards for the Scramble arcade game, the Coin-Op, in the United States. Now, Stern had licensed Scramble from Konami, but they had the exclusive U.S. rights, and they went after an outfit that bootlegged Stern's PCBs so faithfully that they actually had the same copyright notice on them as the originals. This wasn't quite the same sort of thing, but the point is, there was a growing school of thought that perhaps the code and design and look and feel of a video game, these were elements that could be copyrighted. But on December 4th, 1981, 
U.S. District Court George Layton refused Atari's demand for an injunction against continued sales of Casey Munchkin because in his in his view the game was quote not substantially similar to Pac-Man unquote on the grounds the average consumer wouldn't get the two confused. Atari filed an appeal in January, but the the big thing there is that Atari failed to get an injunction that took Casey Munchkin out of the stores before Christmas 1981. Now, it's interesting to note that Bill Kunkel's article, the one that I just quoted from, says that Casey Munchkin was pulled from the stores before the holidays, but the court records indicate that the injunction was not granted, and thus Phillips would have had no reason to pull the game. It shipped and it sold. And we'll get back to that later, because that that directly addresses the question of the rarity of Casey Munchkin from a collector's standpoint. However, the victory was short-lived. The appeal was argued in January 1982, and a ruling was issued on March 2nd of 1982 that Casey Munchkin was substantially similar to Pac-Man and could no longer be sold. Phillips filed an appeal, which was denied in October of 1982. First mention of this in the video game press comes from the ever-reliable Electronic Games, issue number 5 in July 1982, right about the time I was turning 10 years old. The headline from this article, Pac-Man Bites KC Munchkin. Atari's attempts to protect its license for the home version of the top-rated coin-op Pac-Man have brought the company into a protracted legal struggle with ace-rival North American Phillips. The Sunnyvale, California manufacturer claims that NAP's Odyssey division had produced a cartridge, Casey Munchkin, which infringes on its own VCS Pac-Man. The fireworks began last November. At that time, Atari sought to have Munchkin yanked from the stores in time for Christmas. Although the injunction wasn't granted at that time, the judge ultimately ruled that the graphic elements used in Munchkin did indeed infringe on the Pac-Man visuals. Odyssey appealed this decision and won a temporary stay, which allowed it to keep shipping its own popular gobble game. So there again, we have a piece of information that basically tells us, you know, kind of what I thought. And Casey Munchkin still sold like hotcakes Christmas of 1981. Returning to the article, it says, As Electronic Games goes to press, there has been yet another important development. Atari has succeeded in getting a judge to vacate the stay, with the result that Munchkin is not being shipped to stores at the present time, as of whatever the lead time for a July 1982 issue was. In a related case, Online Systems, maker of Jawbreaker for the Atari 400-800, has settled its litigation with Atari. The software publisher is believed to have negotiated a licensing agreement that will allow it to continue to market its much-praised Maze Chase. A sales chart elsewhere in this issue shows that KC Munchkin was the number eight most popular top-selling video game cartridge, coming in ahead of Major League Baseball for the Intellivision and just behind Stampede and Video Pinball for the 2600. Uh, for the record, the top three most popular titles were all 2600 games in order, starting from number one, Asteroids, Missile Command, and Adventure. And that same issue, somewhat perversely, then goes on to devote almost an entire two-page spread of Frank Tetro Jr.'s strategy session column to KC Munchkin, which you could now no longer buy! What the heck, Frank? Now, what's interesting here is that Online Systems, which was the precursor to Sierra Online, 
settled and licensed from Atari the ability to keep doing Jawbreaker. So Atari would accept a, you know, a, a mea culpa and, hey, let's, let's throw you some money and get a license for this, unless you were North American Phillips, in which case Atari was out for blood. Obviously, I think they were looking to make a very public example of someone who just happened to be a rising competitor for Atari's console business. Because I remember at the time, late 81, early 82, the buzz around Casey Munchkin was considerable. I had friends come over to my house because they wanted to play the good Pac-Man game on my Odyssey. Here's another article, this one from August 1982, the first issue of Video Gaming Illustrated. The headline, KCKO. Atari and Midway Manufacturing Company have landed what sadly appears to be a knockout blow to Odyssey 2's delightful KC Munchkin home video game. In short, snap up those cartridges video buffs, for a federal appeals court has ordered the stalwart muncher off the market. It also says, as a result, Odyssey 2 is allowed to sell cartridges which are still in the stores, but is enjoined from filling new orders. They could not ship any further cartridges out to the stores. Now, the fact that they had been sued early on and had squeaked out of a an injunction by the skin of their teeth, I would have to imagine that if I were in charge of logistics at Magnavox, I would ship everything, ship every unit somewhere so it's in the store already because the fact that Magnavox's legal division was in on the development of KC Munchkin from the get-go, they knew this game was going to get them in trouble. They had to know it. That brings us to the question. Okay, so we've established now, we have more data points saying that the game was in stores at Christmas 1981 then we have data points saying that it wasn't. So is KC Munchkin actually rare? Should you be paying a premium for a KC Munchkin cartridge here and now? No, you shouldn't. It should be almost as common as any other Challenger series game in the Odyssey 2 library. It's really an urban legend that the game got sued off the market because it was in stores for a Christmas season, and you have to imagine going into a Christmas season with a release date right at the end of October. They had to have mass-produced this thing knowing that they had a very slim window to make hay while the sun shines. You should have no trouble getting yourself a copy of Casey Munchkin because the court order to keep it off the store shelves came during the appeal process after it had already been a hot Christmas seller. So, unless the thing is just pristine, do yourself a favor. Don't let anyone scam you out of a lot of money for a even a boxed copy of Casey Munchkin because it's not that rare. It was not withdrawn. Magnavox did not have to bury its stock in a landfill in Alamogordo, Atari. Just saying. So, it shouldn't be that rare, and it should not command, you know, rarity, commodity prices, like some people seem to think that it should. 
And that really closes the story of KC Munchkin. I hope you've enjoyed the level of detail involved. I know that a lot of this installment of Select Game has had to do with things other than video games. You know, it's had to do with courtroom cases and pleadings and evidence and appeals and the background of the game. On the other hand, all of that information being on the public record really puts a huge amount of the development of this game at our fingertips that we might not otherwise have. Oh, I also wanted to go into the, that level of detail to clear up some misconceptions about KC Munchkin. You know, the court didn't yank it out of the stores immediately, and the game is not particularly rare. What KC Munchkin is, actually, is it's an incredible game. This was a fantastic showcase for the Odyssey 2. Because not only did it give you a better version of a very popular arcade game than any other console in its class could deliver, it got there first. And it came bundled with a level editor that was native to the software. And the reviews also reveal that Casey Munchkin was very favorably looked upon by the game press and the consumer electronic press at the time. Now it's kind of interesting, Atari was creative in dealing with some of their other alleged infringers that they filed suits or threatened to file suits against. Whether they were extracting a licensing agreement from Sierra, or something even wilder, there was a company called HAL Laboratories, which I do not believe is in any way related to the, the HAL Laboratories that was later involved in the Kirby games for the Nintendo Entertainment System and the Game Boy. I think it's a different HAL Labs. I could be mistaken. I'd be very surprised if they're the same entity. But HAL Laboratories released a Pac-Man knockoff, a, a perfect Pac-Man knockoff for the Apple II called Taxman. The maze was perfectly identical to arcade Pac-Man. I mean, really, for for years and years, Taxman on the Apple II was as close as you got to the quality of emulation, really. Up until you got uh, up until you got the NES versions, that was as good as Pac-Man got on any kind of home platform. HAL Laboratories got sued by Atari, and apparently, as part of the as part of the pleading, it surrendered its code for Taxman, which Atari tweaked slightly, turned into official Pac-Man, and then re-released under its Atari Soft banner for the Apple II. So the question becomes: What was the difference between what Sierra was doing? Or what online systems, sorry, online systems. You know, what was different about what online systems and HAL laboratories were doing compared to Magnavox? I think the answer is that Jawbreaker and Taxman weren't raking in positive magazine reviews like Casey Munchkin was. Casey Munchkin lives on to this day, amazingly enough. It is probably the longest-lived part of the, the Odyssey 2 DNA to have made it this far. 
Fairly recently, there was a great version of it released for the Atari 7800. It was programmed by Robert DiCrescenzo, and it, it really does the original Odyssey 2 version justice. It is a fantastic game. It looks and sounds... Well, there are two modes. There are two modes to it. You can play it in a form that looks and sounds exactly like the Odyssey 2, or in a version that kind of pleasingly tweaks and updates the graphics and sounds to the capabilities of the Atari 7800. We'll talk about that one another time, because that one's a lot of fun, and even though it's not on the Odyssey 2 proper, I, I think it's worthy of mention in a later installment. Also, Casey Munchkin has come back to life in the 21st century in the form of a new educational game programmed by, get this, Ed Averett at Microsoft. It is an app that is in the Windows 10 store, and it involves Casey Munchkin repairing DNA to help make sick people better. I will include a link to this on the show page at thelogbook.com slash select game for your edification. And at some point, we're probably going to get around to playing that game, too, because even if KC Munchkin no longer lives on the Odyssey 2, KC Munchkin lives. And that's the important part of this story. Just a quick reminder, there will be a Christmas special of Select Game that kind of steps outside of the Odyssey 2 box that the rest of the podcast is in. Kind of, sort of. The Odyssey 2 still has a lot to do with it but perhaps not as much directly as the monthly podcast does. So join us just before Christmas. That episode is already recorded and in the can, and it awaits your pleasure. Thanks for listening. Thanks for supporting Select Game this year. I can't thank you enough. Thanks to Patreon supporters. Thanks to everyone who's dropped me a note via email, via Twitter, via Facebook, via Tumblr. Your enthusiasm is appreciated. It keeps me going. It helps me to know that, yeah, even though I sound like I've got a face full of snot, which I do, people are waiting for me to sit down in front of this microphone and talk about this stuff. And after the hellish 2016 that we have all had, and that I in particular have had on a personal front, you have no idea how much good that does for my heart. Thank you very much. That's all the time we have for the Select Game Podcast. You can hear Select Game on iTunes, Stitcher, and throwbacknetwork.net. And you can also subscribe through the RSS feed. You'll find the podcast itself and occasional goodies associated with it at www.thelogbook.com slash selectgame. If you really dig Select Game, also check out the 365-day-a-year escape pod geek history podcast at thelogbook.com. And donations toward the site's upkeep are always gladly accepted at PayPal, or via my Amazon wish lists. You can also support the podcast by buying select game t-shirts and other goodies at redbubble.com. Look under user the logbook. Phosphor.fossils, a comprehensive timeline of the golden era of video games, including the Odyssey 2, can be downloaded at thelogbook.com, which is also where you can find the books I've written about Doctor Who, Forp 1 and Forp 2. Feel free to drop me a line at the Facebook page for thelogbook.com, via Twitter at logbookguy, 
or email me at earl at thelogbook.com. Select Game Expanded Memories of the Odyssey 2 is a production of thelogbook.com and was written and produced by Earl Green. Music performed by Kasatochi, available for free download at thelogbook.com.